So if you're keeping track, uh, today marks the fifth Sunday in the season of Lent. Are you keeping track? Okay, which means that exactly two weeks from today is Easter Sunday. Isn't that great? Easter's coming. I, mean, I, I just feel like we've, you know, we've never needed Easter more than sort of we need it this year. You know what I mean? Just after all of these losses and all of these frustrations and the disappointments, the challenges, and yes, the deaths, I just feel like the hope of Easter is a message that we really need. And it's coming. So uh, I trust that y'all are going to gather here in two weeks. All the spring breakers will be back <laughs> so you can fill this place up and, and just have a powerful celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. It's coming. It's coming. But in the meantime, uh, we're in this season of Lent, which is a time to focus on Jesus and his life, and particularly on his journey to the cross, to focus on that cross. I don't know if you noticed where we were singing all of the cross songs tonight. Did you pick that up? That's good. So we are going to focus on that cross tonight. Uh, and as we reflect on the cross of Jesus, perhaps we'll be prompted to repent, to align ourselves more closely with the life that Jesus is calling us to live. Uh, hopefully we'll be prompted to... Uh, to follow Jesus in living that same kind of cross-shaped life of sacrifice and service and pouring himself out for the sake of other people. That's the whole purpose of reflecting on the cross, everybody, that we can be grateful for what Jesus did, but then also motivated to live the way he lived. So tonight we're going to focus on that cross. Well, actually, we're going to focus on three crosses because there were three of them, right? There was the cross that Jesus hung on, but then as we all know, there were two others. So we're going to think tonight for just a few moments uh, about the three crosses. And our scripture reading then comes from Luke chapter 23, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 32. So let's listen to the Word of God tonight. Uh, Luke 23, beginning at verse 32. So two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? 
We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this is the word of the Lord. So one of the most famous uh, silhouettes that you will see is the silhouette of the three crosses on that hill outside of the city of Jerusalem. I think everyone has some kind of a sense of the significance of the silhouette of those three crosses. And so tonight, on this fifth Sunday in Lent, I just want to take a few moments to meditate with you on the image of those three crosses and, and just ask you to stay open and soft before God, listen to his word and as he speaks to you. And let's just consider tonight together what happened on each of those three crosses because something very significant happened on each one of those three crosses. Let's think first of all for a moment about one of those outside crosses. Doesn't matter which one, but just focus your eyes and your attention, if you will, on one of those outside crosses because an absolute tragedy occurred on that cross. A man died in his sin. Luke 23, verse 39 says, one of the criminals was hurling insults at Jesus, abuse and scorn and ridicule and just mocking Jesus. He's within hours of the judgment and he makes the calculated decision to check out of this life with his fist clenched toward God. He's going to die in his sin. And of course, this is the precise tragedy that Jesus came to this earth to, avo to avoid. Jesus himself said it many times during his earthly ministry. John 8, 24, unless you believe that, Jesus, that, that, that I am he, you shall die in your sin. It's as though Jesus were saying, you know, whatever you do, whatever mistake you make, just don't make this one. Don't die in your sin. Please, don't die in your sin. Well, why? Because the word of God is sufficiently clear in its description of what happens to people who die in their sin. Scripture tells us that people who die in their sin wind up standing before a holy God, an absolutely righteous God, morally pure God, and then they discover by comparison, you know, the holiness of God and, and their own sinfulness. They discover how sin-stained they really are and how desperately they need a Savior to cleanse them from the stains of sin. But it's too late. And the words of Jesus, I think, will come back to every condemned sinner. Whatever you do, just don't die in your sin. And of course, Scripture says that unforgiven sinners will be judged 
for their refusal to embrace Christ as their Savior. And then they'll receive in eternity what they insisted on all throughout their lives, all along here on earth. And that is separation from God. But then it will mean hell forever, eternal condemnation, isolation from God. No second chances. I think part of the agony of enduring that sentence for unforgiven sins is just going to be the, you know, the flood of remorse from being reminded you know, of how many times in specific situations you know, throughout their whole life, how many times you know, the Spirit tugged them and said, come and, 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 and come to faith. And they said, no, go away. I don't want it. Recall how many times that, that God invited them to faith and they said no. How many times that God put another believer close to them and for whatever reason they called these Christians fanatics or do-gooders or weak people or naive? Unforgiven sinners have had opportunities, and they will, I think, be very mindful of those opportunities, and then, I think, be filled with remorse because of spurning God's offers of love. People who die in their sin receive in eternity what they insisted on their whole lives long. It's tragic, isn't it? It's tragic that anyone should die in their sin and suffer for eternity. But focus on that outside cross. Can you see what makes this man's case even more tragic? I mean, surely you can see it, right? I mean, look at how close the crosses are. The unrepentant thief dies in his sin inches from the touch of the Savior. Just inches. The solution to his sin problem was just inches away, right within his grasp, and yet he chose to let it slip away and say no. I mean, it wasn't just a tragedy, it's a double tragedy. It's a tragedy, you know, when somebody drowns in a lake. It's an unthinkable tragedy when somebody drowns in a lake because they won't reach out to a life preserver that's been thrown to them by a friend. But it happened on that Good Friday. Someone within inches of the Savior died in his sin. Of course, that's not the only time that it's happened. It's happened all throughout history, right? And maybe just forget about history for a moment. It, 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 just bring it home. It, it happens still today, doesn't it? In our culture, in our society, in our community, Maybe even in this church. I mean, maybe there have been people who have been sitting in the exact same chairs and pews that you're sitting in who have listened to the book that I'm preaching from tonight and they're inches away from the Savior, inches away from the touch of Jesus that would save them for all eternity and yet they have chosen to live their own way in their own sin and they're still vulnerable today to that judgment. And they say, no thanks. I don't need it. 
I'm strong enough in myself. I can write my own story. I can provide for my own security. I don't need God. And they make that decision. And I would say, you know, to any of those people tonight, you know, the same thing that Jesus said throughout his ministry. Salvation is only a prayer away. It's only a prayer away. So wake up. No matter how far you've fallen into sin, no matter whatever you think you've done and how dark it is, how long you've wandered, separated from God, the promise of Scripture in Romans 10, 13 is that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Every single sinner is just a prayer away from salvation. So how about it? You know, maybe, I don't know, I don't know if there's someone here tonight, perhaps. Uh, God is tugging at you. God is inviting you. God is prompting you. And maybe it's time for you to say, you know, I need to admit my sin. I just need to admit my need and realize that you're going to stand before a holy God and that you are in desperate need of a Savior. We all are. And then call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So while you're mindful of the tragedy that happened on one of those outside crosses, then shift your attention to the other outside cross next to Jesus because an unbelievable victory occurred on that cross. A man was forgiven of his sin in the final hours of his life. The tragedy was averted. It was an 11th hour rescue. It was an overtime victory. Luke 23 also records his story. When the chips were down, when eternal realities came into focus for this repentant thief, he swallowed his pride. He stopped lying to himself. He stopped buying the lies of Satan. And he just cleared his mind. And he came to grips with the truth about himself and the truth about the Savior. And he said to the other thief who was mocking Jesus and ridiculing him, he said, stop it. Speak for yourself, but you don't speak for me anymore. Luke 23, verse 41, he says something very significant. He said, for we are receiving what we deserve. I'm, he said, I'm receiving my just due. And friends, that's an amazing admission for any man or any woman to make. He didn't say, my parents messed me up and that's the reason I'm here on this cross. He didn't say it was my first grade teacher who put me down or because I was raised on the wrong side of town or life has treated me unfairly or society has to resume its responsibility for my predicament or all the other you know, rationalizations that sound so appealing to all of us. He said, I am guilty and I am receiving my just due. And he just stopped lying to himself and he said, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I'm in big trouble and I'm getting what's coming to me and I deserve it. See, friends, when a person sees and speaks the truth about his sinfulness, it's halfway home. And this thief saw it. And he spoke it clearly in front of everybody else. He said, I'm getting what I deserve. 
The second thing this thief on the cross said in verse 41, last part there, he says, this man, this man, referring to Jesus, has done nothing wrong. This man is not a sinner. He is unjustly accused. I mean, he no doubt had heard, I guess, something about Jesus, right? Maybe rumors of his teachings around or something about his miracles, certainly about his claim to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Deliverer from heaven. And this thief not only speaks the truth about himself, but now he speaks the truth about the sinless Savior. He's saying, I know who I am, and I know who he is. He's exactly who he says he is. He's the Son of God, and he's done no wrong. Then the next thing he does is he calls out to Jesus, just very personally in sort of a clumsy manner, right? He, he, he doesn't know what the words to say. He's just kind of making this up as he's going along. It's all unplanned, and it's all coming clear to him now in the final moments of his life. He doesn't know exactly how to reach out to Christ. He doesn't even know the right words to say. So he just says, just remember me. When this is all over, Jesus, and you come into your kingdom, please remember me. And I guess if I could paraphrase his words, he's saying, Jesus, you're the only hope I have. I mean, you're the only hope I have, Jesus. Without you, I'm a tragedy for all eternity. Without you, I'm, I'm going to die in my sin. But with you, I can experience a victory and salvation. So, so Jesus, would you just please remember me? And it's interesting. You know, he didn't say, remember me, and then make a whole flood of commitments and promises to Jesus. He didn't say, Remember me, and then I'm going to try to turn over a new leaf in my life and go a different way. He just said, remember me. Just save me, Jesus. Just save me. And that's how every single sinner comes to faith. Promising God nothing, but just pleading with him for salvation and throwing ourselves on the mercy of God because of the overwhelming awareness of our own sin before him. And, and if you're making any promises tonight, if you're making any of those promises, forget it. You know, your promises won't do. Then they're not going to make it. You just need to humble yourself and be broken. Admit your sin. Just call out to God. God, save me. Rescue me. Deliver me through what Jesus has done on the cross. And so this repentant thief, right, in his clumsy manner, uncoordinated fashion, says, just remember me. And then Jesus answers right back. Jesus says to him, okay, it's settled. I honor your prayer. You know, today you're going to be with me in paradise. It's over. It's settled. Relax. It's all been taken care of. You matter to me. I'll see you in heaven. Amazing, unbelievable victory, isn't it? A man within hours of hell owns up, looks over, 
calls out and he receives from Jesus a guarantee of eternal life. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. I want to say sinners matter so much to God that the door of heaven will swing open to a sincere prayer for salvation until death itself swallows up that sinner. Wow, what a God we have. You know, there's only one little shadow to the story about the criminal who was the repentant thief. And it's due to the lateness of the hour. The forgiven criminal had little or no opportunity to demonstrate his gratitude back to Jesus for what he had just done for him. Really, he had no time really for worship or for service or for character transformation or for bold proclamation of the gospel to whoever would listen. You know, I think if we had a guest visit tonight, imagine that, a guest visit tonight from this repentant thief, I bet he would stand before us tonight and he would say and look at all of us in the eye and say, people, take advantage of the time that you have left to show the Savior how grateful you are for what he has done for you in saving you. You see, some of us don't get the chance. See, some of us are foolish right up until the last moment of our lives, and then only then we gain our senses, and then only by grace do we get saved. He would say, some of you are smarter. Be smarter. Repent sooner. Come to Christ earlier, and then you'll have more time. Well, more time for what? Well, more time for worship. Worship from your lips. Worship from your life. Worship from your giving. Worship from your serving. Worship from your bold proclamation to as many people as God will give you opportunity to share this message with. Worship in your character transformation and becoming the person that God has designed you to be where you can just sing, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I'll bet the repentant thief would say, take advantage of all of the different avenues that you have of saying thank you because some of us don't get the chance. Well, there was an absolute tragedy on that first cross, right? A man died in his sin. And then there was an unbelievable victory on the other cross because a man was forgiven of his sin in the final moments of his life. And now, in closing tonight, I just want to take a moment or two to focus on that cross in the middle. Focus on that cross in the middle. You've looked at it before. You know what happened on it. The Son of God, the Lamb of God, the beautiful Savior, died for sinners. And just let me remind you that on that cross, Jesus died willingly. Jesus died willingly. 
You know, at his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember Peter draws the sword and, and he's going to protect Jesus from all the opposition that night. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 53, he said, I could command 12 legions of angels to come and stop this arrest right now. But uh, Peter, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim in this situation. And of course, he said in John chapter 10, I lay down my life of my own initiative. No one takes it from me. I am the good shepherd, and I willingly lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down, and I take it back up again. He died on that cross willingly because he loves you, and he loves me. And I tell you, I, I just... I don't understand it. The older in Christ that I get, the more of a mystery this is to me. You know, what wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? I'll say it again. He died willingly because we matter to him. And it was the only way that our sins could be forgiven and that justice could be served and that forgiveness could be granted. This was the plan from the foundation of the world. Remember? God said, I'm not satisfied with offerings and sacrifices, but a body I have prepared for you. And Jesus looked at his father and said, okay, I'll take that body and I'll go down to that earth and I'll make that sacrifice willingly that will satisfy you, Father. You know, it's always been, you know, a question of, you know, who killed Jesus, right? Throughout history, some say, well, it's the Romans, right? It's the Romans. They, they put down a political revolutionary. They killed him. Or some say it's the Jews, Right? They didn't, they accuse him of blasphemy, and they're the ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So, you know, it's the Jews who got him crucified. Well, of course, neither of those answers is right, is it? The answer to who killed Jesus is Jesus killed himself. He went willingly. He went willingly. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't struggle, right? He was a human being, too. And and uh, he, he said, you know, in the, in the Gospel of John, it says that he said, now my soul is troubled. But, Father, should I, should I ask you to save me from this hour? And then he answers his own question. He says, no, it's for this very reason that I came to this hour. And so he goes in the midst of the struggle. Remember in the garden, he saw, he realized he was going to have to drink that cup of God's wrath. And he said, no, not that cup. I can't do it. But then you remember, he added, not my will, but yours be done. And so he willingly drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could be free. He died willingly. And then he died innocently. He died innocently. Now, this, this is not just a theological technicality here. A guilty party cannot pay for the crimes of other people. 
He has to pay for his own crimes. Only an innocent party can pay for the crimes of somebody else. And Jesus was innocent. He was sinless. Even the thief acknowledged that, right? He was the perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament mandate that all sin offerings must be sacrifices without blemish or without spot. Which is what John the Baptist was driving at when he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, the unblemished, innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died innocently. He had to, to pay for our sins because we were standing there in the courtroom waiting for the verdict to be read. And we know what's coming. We know what's coming, right? Guilty. But instead, the judge bangs the gavel and says, not guilty. What? Not guilty? How can that be? Who's going to pay the price? Who can even bear the weight of all that wrath and all that sin? And God said, oh, it's my son Jesus. He's going to switch places with you. He's going to take your guilt and you're going to get his righteousness. What a deal that is. But of course, it could only happen if Jesus were innocent, and he was the unblemished Lamb of God, he died willingly. He died innocently, and then finally, he died expectantly. He died expectantly. He died trusting that hundreds or thousands or, or tens or hundreds of thousands of people would be gripped by his love and his sacrifice at some later point in time, gripped by it, crushed by it, knocked down by it, overwhelmed by the grace and, and moved by it to the extent that they would see their own sinfulness and acknowledge the Savior, that they would just call out to him personally, receive salvation, be born again, be renewed from the inside, and then transformed into the image of that Savior over time. I'm telling you, Jesus died expecting that, trusting that that would happen, anticipating that then you know, those individuals and those believers would assemble themselves into communities and into families and, and then into churches and that they would share the miracle of their salvation and conversion with other people, that they would exalt the Savior together in worship, that they would discover the character of the Savior and the kindness of the Savior, and that they would learn to walk in his ways and that they would challenge each other to live with integrity and with purpose. Jesus died expecting that from you and from me. Jesus died expecting and trusting that these communities, these churches would organize themselves for the task of proclaiming his love and his substitutionary death to the whole world to anyone who would listen. Jesus died expecting that the Holy Spirit would come and fill those communities and those people and that, that we'd passion those communities to live with purpose and vision, advancing the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Jesus died expecting and knowing that someday all of his adopted children would join him in eternity and have the privilege of spending there forever with the Redeemer himself. Jesus died expecting that from us. 
as his people. The cross in the middle. It's our only hope. It's our only plea. It's our only shot at life. It's the only path to heaven. And Jesus died on it for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you tonight for your willingness to come to this earth to become our Savior. And that you made that ultimate sacrifice, the innocent sacrifice, the unblemished Lamb of God, suffering that death, hell itself, on our behalf, so that we could be saved. And Jesus, we respond to that sacrifice. We respond to that love tonight with such gratitude, with such thanksgiving. And we pray that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit to go forth from this place, that we may serve you, that we may pour ourselves out for the good of other people, and that we may reflect the character of Jesus in all that we do and all that we say very accurately. Thank you, Jesus, that you died on that cross for us. Amen.